We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Our church will have five ministry fronts. They're listed on the inside of the back cover of your worship guide. It says our task. These are the ministry fronts of our church. This is the ways that, this is how our church is going to push out into God's creation. Worship and evangelism, mercy and justice, church planting, faith and work, and community formation. These are the five general areas of work that we as a church will focus on in order to be faithful um, to what God has called us to be in, in order to pursue the vision that he's given us. Now tonight we're focusing on mercy and justice. So if you have your Bible or if there's one near you, find the book of Deuteronomy and go to chapter 15. Jump down to verse 11. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Now this was written 3,500 years ago. And at that time, just like today, poverty evidently was pervasive. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Now, according to some of the most conservative estimates, the number of people in the world today that live on less than a dollar per day. Okay, Now, that's an official category of poverty. It's called absolute or extreme poverty. It's 1.2 billion people. And they have stunted bodies and damaged brains as a result of a lack of nourishment. Now, when you raise the, the measurement from absolute poverty or extreme poverty, when you raise it to a category that, that most of the governmental bodies label significant poverty, this is when you live on less than $2 per day. When you make that the criteria, then it covers half of today's population. Half of the world lives on less than $2 per day. Around 3.4 billion people. Now, in the world today, there's approximately 2.2 billion children. The most conservative estimates are that 1 billion of them are living at a level of a significant poverty. 1 billion children. Again, just playing off of the conservative estimates, they are telling us now that 25,000 people are dying every day because of starvation. That comes out to about one person every three and a half seconds. So, since we began our worship service, approximately 350 people have died of poverty. And before we end this service... Around 1,500 people will die. Now, you need to know that that is a reality. I mean, that right now, there are moms and dads holding their children in their arms. Their children are crying and dying of starvation, and the mothers and fathers can do nothing about it except listen to their children cry to death. Now, that's our world. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Ron Snyder, in a very famous book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, starts out the book with this statement, hunger and starvation stalk the land. Why? Why is poverty so 
pervasive? Well, that's, that's a complex question that demands a complex answer. And at the risk of oversimplifying, I'm going to boil a lot of Scripture and a lot of modern scientific analysis down into three general causes of poverty today. First of all, nature. It's the sad result of living in a world that has been shattered and broken by sin. I I will never forget, just a couple of weeks before Silas was born, I walked down to the little corner grocer to buy some chives and pork sausage. And on the front page of all the newspapers were image after image after image of the tsunami. In one day, A tidal wave killed five times as many people as the total number of American soldiers that died in the Vietnam War. Like that. And why? What what was it that caused this incredible destruction, killing and maiming and displacing millions and the survivors being assigned to instant abject poverty? What, What caused that? It was the shifting of tectonic plates. The earth just doing what the earth does. Like Tennyson said, love may be creation's final law, but nature is red in tooth and claw, and she is not innocent. She's ravenous. Now, there's another general cause of poverty, and it's laziness. Proverbs 19, verse 15 puts it this way. Slothfulness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. When I was a teenager, my mother frequently quoted the following verse. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. (laughs) Laziness leads to poverty. That's the second kind of general cause of poverty in our world. And the third general cause, and what's interesting here, is that the Bible is not always consistent with modern experts. But on the third cause, the Bible and modern kind of sociological studies or in lockstep with one another, and it's this. The vast majority of people who are poor are made poor by the actions of others, whether directly or indirectly. The Bible says this over and over, and modern sociological studies reveal this over and over. The vast majority of the poor in Alabama and the world today are made poor by the actions of others, whether direct or indirect. Now, in Scripture, there are five primary techniques of selfishness and greed that result in riches for the perpetrators and poverty for their victims. You know what the five primary ways that happens in Scripture are? And it's amazing how relevant this is for today. Number one, exorbitantly high interest rates. The Bible rails on that as a form of someone growing rich and someone else growing poor. Exorbitantly high interest rates. Number two, greedy business practices. Number three, a corrupt legal system. Number four, the failure of government to provide wise and sufficient forms of welfare. I didn't say the failure of government to provide welfare, but the failure of government to provide wise and sufficient. There are some forms of welfare that condemn those involved into generational poverty. And there are other kinds of welfare that do the exact opposite. And the fifth source of the top five sources of enforced poverty in the Bible, the exploitation of immigrant labor. Now, 
What we're going to see tonight is that God does not have a laissez-faire policy when it comes to poverty. We heard this over and over in the three passages that Jesus... It is critical that those of us who live in a predominantly Republican community, it is absolutely critical that we learn to listen to Scripture on this issue louder than the talk radio show host. The Bible does not portray God having a laissez-faire attitude toward poverty. Let's start with Matt's passage, Deuteronomy 15. Here we see that God chose a nation, Israel, and He entered into a special relationship with her. And through her, in this passage that Matt read to us, we see that God is giving an image of a renewed creation. That God was going to work through Israel to bring renewal, especially in the area of poverty. God is bringing renewal to the poor. Look at verse 4. There will be no poor among you. God is saying, when you live life the way I've set it up to be, when you live as my kingdom, there will not be poor among you. Now, we don't have time tonight to go into all the intricate details of Deuteronomy 15 because I'm going to show you how Deuteronomy 15 actually plays out across the pages of Scripture. I wish that we could, and I wish that we could turn to its partner passage. And you should write this down, Leviticus 25. You should read Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus 25 over and over and over until you develop God's heart for the poor. But what you would notice if you read these two passages is that they are not naive and simplistic. They are as nuanced and convoluted and complicated as federal policy. They're they're incredibly complex. But the main point that I want you to see out of Deuteronomy 15, and if we had time out of Leviticus 25, is this. That God instructs Israel, not only in matters of personal morality, who they're sleeping around with, how much they're drinking, or how much they're cussing. His instructions are not only about American Judeo-Christian ethics, but his instructions for Israel are absolutely about how they treat the poor. What if our churches had qualifications for deacons that not only developed along the lines of personal morality, but along the lines of their business practices and how they treated the poor? What if it was as serious to us in our churches when it comes to leadership as it was to God in his commands to Israel? What I'm trying to say to you is that God's instructions to Israel involved their merciful and just and effective treatment of the poor. And yet Israel continued to neglect the poor. So one of her most famous preachers, This is what Kate read to us. If you'll turn there, Isaiah chapter 58. One of her most famous preachers, his name was Isaiah, he challenged Israel over and over and over again for acting religious but failing to help the poor. What we're doing tonight, Israel had down. They were proficient at this kind of ritualized religion. But what Isaiah nailed them to the wall on was that they failed over and over and over again to respond to the poor 
with mercy and justice and effective policies. Let's, let's just read through this passage. Cry aloud, God says, Isaiah 58 verse 1. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sin. So this is God speaking to Isaiah. Now listen to what Isaiah then says to Israel as he obeys God and speaks like a trumpet. Speaking of Israel, they seek me daily. We would say they have quiet time. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. Isn't that amazing? They show up for Bible study as if they were righteous. As if they did not forsake the judgment of their... They come into church with big fat Bibles with pins and highlighters shoved all in them as if they have not been ignoring my rules. They ask of me righteous judgments. They act like they think they delight to draw near to God. They think. They're deceived. They think they delight in being near to God. And then God asks them a series of rhetorical questions. Why have you fasted and you don't see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Now they're saying this to God. They're saying, God, we're fasting, we're humbling ourselves, and nothing is changing. Behold, in the day of your fast, God says back to them, you seek your own pleasure. Now, this is a fundamental shift in the whole chapter. God lays open their problem. They think they're righteous, but the real problem is they're pursuing ritualized religion, but really in their heart, they're living life in a way that pleases themselves. And look what he says next. He doesn't say, but you're sleeping around. He doesn't say, but I don't know, you're going to Disneyland or something like that. You oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard from God. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Now look, God just ripped right through their ritualized expressions of religion. He said, you're doing everything right on the outside. And then in verse 6, is this not the fast that I choose? Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from the man begging for food at the corner? Remember, he was made from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth. Look, when you do this, he says, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. God, why aren't you listening to my prayers? And God says, well, maybe because you're not helping the poor. 
The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. And make your bones strong and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Now, it's clear from Deuteronomy and from Isaiah, and we could go to a whole huge amounts of other passages in the Old Testament. It is clear that God expected Israel to mercifully and justly and effectively respond to the poor. And they did it. Now jump forward 700 more years. It's around AD 26. Jesus is in his hometown. He's about to preach his inaugural sermon. This is the passage that Jason read to us. Luke chapter 4. If you'll look there with me. Luke chapter 4. Let's start in the second half of verse 16. He's in his hometown. Says he came to Nazareth. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now that's the preacher that we just looked at, right? Their Bible wasn't all wrapped up in one nice, neat, leather-bound book. It was a series of scrolls, and every synagogue would have had a collection, a precious collection of these. And Jesus is given the scroll of Isaiah, and look what it says he does. He unrolled the scroll, and he found a particular place. He was looking for a specific place. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now you need to picture this in your mind. He's gone back to his hometown. He's read this in the synagogue that he grew up in where he was running around with his little diaper or whatever the toga equivalent of that was back in the day. After reading that passage... He rolls up the scroll, it says in verse 20. He gives it back to the attendant. Then he sits down because that's what the teacher did. After he read it, he would sit down in front of the synagogue. And the eyes of all in the synagogue are fixed on him. And he began by saying this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's critical that you put Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Luke 4 together. It is critical that you see Jesus just put a bomb in the middle of Judaism. And he just said, I am the fulfillment of Israel's identity. Now, it is absolutely important that you know This passage of scripture that Jesus deliberate, they hand him a scroll. He deliberately finds this one part of scripture out of Isaiah. It's critical that you know it is a direct quote from Leviticus chapter 25. Jesus is going to the laws of poverty. And he's saying all of that stuff you failed to fulfill in me is the fulfillment of it. And it is so important to what I'm about That is the verse I will quote at my inaugural address. That is the essence of my identity. My identity is wrapped up 
in what God told Israel to do, not to the wealthy, but to the poor. Israel, all along, was God's solution to poverty. And Jesus is saying, nothing has changed. I am Israel. I am the embodiment of life lived the way it was meant to be lived. I am the embodiment of Israel. I am the embodiment of God's kingdom. I am the fulfillment of God's plan to make all things new. And if you look at me, you will see the kingdom of God. You will see in me life being renewed in every square inch of every socioeconomic category. So, when you turn to the early church, something begins to show up. A passage of Scripture we didn't read tonight, but has been read many times in this room. Look at Acts chapter 2. Now remember, Luke wrote both the gospel according to Luke, we just read from it, and he wrote the history of the early church, which we call the book of Acts. So we're looking at part two, same author. And when Luke goes to summarize in Acts chapter 2, what he thinks is the essence of the early church, Luke 2 verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then just a few pages later, in chapter 4, he summarizes the essence of the early church again, and look what it says in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Do you recognize that first sentence? There was not a needy person among them. It is a direct quote of Deuteronomy 15.4. There will be no poor among you. You see, the church understood themselves as the fulfillment Of Israel's hope. They saw themselves as the people in whom God's promises for thousands of years they were coming true. Among those promises was the extraordinary image of what life will look like for the poor in the kingdom of God. So Luke, in writing his gospel of Jesus' life and in writing the history of the early church, he is showing that Christianity is the true covenant community that God had intended to set up all along. What What he's saying is that Jesus came along and said, all of those commands to Israel, I am the embodiment of that. And then when the early church started, they called themselves the what of Christ? The body of Christ. So they took that identity on themselves. They saw themselves. They understood themselves as Israel. Can you imagine what that did to that Greco-Roman community that they lived in? Can you imagine what it did in Jerusalem when the early Christian community 
was quietly upstaging all that went on in the civic religion of their era. What you do with your money and with your possessions declares loudly what sort of community you are. No wonder they were able to give such a powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. They were demonstrating that resurrection life, kingdom life, is a reality. And it didn't stop in the book of Acts. In the centuries that followed, it happened time and time again. About a year ago, I came across this historian, Peter Brown, who was explaining the incredible growth of Christianity in the early centuries. And here's a quote as he tries to summarize why the Christian church grew so rapidly. He says, At a time of inflation, the Christians invested large sums of liquid capital in people. At a time of increased brutality, the courage of Christian martyrs was impressive. During public emergencies such as plague or rioting, the Christian clergy were shown to be the only united group in town that was able to look after the burial of the dead and to organize food supplies. Plainly, to be a Christian in 250 AD brought more protection from one's fellows than to be a citizen of the Roman Empire. What if life was just better when people joined the church? Today, one out of five people live in poverty. A poverty that is so extreme, their survival is daily in doubt. Now this is heartbreaking to God. Is it to you? Or have you chosen a side of the mountain that allows you to no longer see it and no longer be shattered by it. Scripture is clear. The church, every church must address poverty. God gave Israel strong and explicit orders to eliminate poverty from her community, not by ratcheting up the housing prices and gentrifying the neighborhood so that the, the, the poor have to leave. That, that's one technique to eliminate poverty from a community. Jesus identified himself as the embodiment of God's work in Israel, and the early church understood herself as the true Israel, and this is the primary reason that all things new insist on mercy and justice as one of the five core ministries of this church. It cannot be a thanksgiving, go down to some poor area and pat yourself on the back and give out a turkey and check it off for the year. It must be an embodiment of the kingdom. In our midst, we as a church 
must commit ourselves to the hard work of a merciful and just and effective response to poverty. It must be on the front burner of our church. And as we do this, we are implementing the achievement of Jesus and his resurrection, and we are anticipating the final renewal of all things. When a widow in our church is helped because one of us sells a car to help her out, we're showing a picture to the world of what life will be like when the Lord returns, and there is indeed no poor among you. The church was brought into being by Jesus and energized by the Holy Spirit. And we are called to be agents of transformation for the Father. And we are to bring that transformative news of God's rescuing work to every problem we face. We belong to Jesus. And we are called to put things to rights. God has sent us into this world to preach the gospel, to teach and heal and work for the poor and the needy. Let, let's end by thinking about these two verses. Acts 4.34, there was not a needy person among them. That's the first church. That's our heritage. That's what our forefathers did. That is what we must do also. In Deuteronomy 15.4, there will be no poor among you. This is God's call to Israel that Jesus picked up and embodied and the early church picked up and embodied. And it is our calling. And it's critical that we see Deuteronomy 15, Leviticus 25, Isaiah 58. It does not say the way you eliminate poverty is you eliminate housing options for the poor. There must be no poor among you. So where do we go from here? Well, we go on a lifetime of committing ourselves to this together. And, and what it's going to look like for our church is going to be wonderful. It's, it, it's going to be at the intersection of the needs in our community and the creative resources that we can bring to bear upon them. But one place that we're going to start as a church is with the five categories of people that Scripture explicitly identifies as needy. Five categories of people that the Bible commands us to help. The poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the day laborer. The minimum wage earners. Now there's a lot of work to do. Tonight all I'm doing is planting a stake in the ground. Our church will serve the poor and the needy. We're going to serve them with mercy. We're going to fight for them in justice. And we're going to bring our incredible resources creatively to bear upon the very complex problems of poverty. And this is going to be our identity as a church. I heard a pastor say once, whoever said it, I'm, I, I think it's amazing we should steal. He said, we want to be the kind of church that the town fathers say, we hope that church never stops because if they do, we'll have to raise taxes to do what they're doing. 
it's going to be a core ministry of our church. Now, I think one place that you can start with this is that you and your family can read over these passages. Read over Deuteronomy 15, Leviticus 25, Isaiah 58, Luke chapter 4, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and you and your family, you can begin to ask yourself, do we want God to hear our prayers? Do we want the scorched places in our life to have life again? Then what are we doing on behalf of the poor? Because what we're not doing there effectively eliminates all of our polished religious ritual. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would have mercy on us. And that you would help us as a church to commit ourselves to the long, hard work of a merciful and just and effective response to poverty. And that you would break our hearts for the poor. Father, I pray that these passages of Scripture would sit heavy in our lives. And that it would not just be a ministry of our church on paper, but that out of this group of believers, you would draw up imaginative and creative ideas for how we can move forward to embody your kingdom. Right here over the mountain. Help us, Lord. Help us to honor you. Amen.